Shall I sing, we shall overcome while I swing? I have wanted so long to believe in justice. Welcome to the Poetry Magazine podcast. I'm Ashley M. Jones. When I first heard the work of Dr. Jacqueline Allen Trimble, or Jackie as I call her, I heard something Southern, unapologetically Black, fierce, sweet and strong in the way all Black women are sweet and strong. In this episode, I talked with Jackie about Alabama, activism, and the under-recognized power of historically Black colleges and universities in America. I first heard her poetry at the Magic City Poetry Festival in Birmingham, Alabama. I had invited Jackie and Kiese Lehman to discuss the legacy and representation of the South in the wake of the Civil Rights Movement. That's where the conversation begins. Y'all just laid out all of the truths that everybody <laughs> needed to hear about being from the South and about yes. the false progress narrative that we hear about so often. And even, I think, breaking down some barriers around being Southern and being outspoken. Right. You are very clearly Southern. Right. There's a deep southern No apologies. Exactly. <laughs> And there's even, there's this, you know, this, this false, we're all polite kind of right. narrative, <laughs> which we are, but also there's truth. There's truth. There's truth. And I definitely see that so much in your first book, American Happiness, and in these new poems. Um, and I wonder if you would read, this is why people burning down fast food joints and whatnot, which is in the July, August issue. And we can talk a little bit more about that politeness versus activism dichotomy. All right. This is why people burning down fast food joints and whatnot. Question, how do others sin against you? Answer, by cursing me, telling lies about me, or striking me. Question, what must you do to those who thus sin against you? Answer, I must forgive them. See, I learned my catechism well. Learn to offer my cloak and coat, my cheek again and again as the skin was splayed from my body. I can quote Martin Luther King Jr. with ease, praise the Americana of his martyrdom, the sweet, unselfish beauty of that bullet's velocity. Shall I sing, we shall overcome while I swing? I have wanted so long to believe in justice, to think of each blow as recompense for my wickedness. How can I continue? How can I continue? How can I continue to take and eat this image of myself, choke on the eloquence of my descent, speak love fluently to someone with his knee on my neck, his bullet in my child? Thank you. Yeah, we could go line by line. I'm not going to do that to our listeners here. <laughs> we could do it, could however. Do it. Um, but this poem, it reminds me a lot, actually, of another poem of yours that I love called Everybody in the World Hate the South or Everybody in America yeah. Hate the South. Yeah, Everybody in America Hate the South. Yeah. Yes. I mean, what you say in this poem takes it a step further the way that people expect us as Black people, and I would say as Southern Black people, and right. especially as Black women too, to just swallow all of this poison right? and turn around and bless your heart. I mean, yes, bless you, but also get off my children. 
Well, you know, it's a it's an occupational habit. I'm a, a professor of American literature, so one of the things I teach all the time, I'm fascinated by the catechisms that came out from the churches that were aimed at enslaved people and how enslaved people should behave, the gratitude they should have for their enslavement, et cetera, et cetera. And this is the way they often were inculcated into religion. And so I'm fascinated by the way religion, particularly in the South, has been used as a mechanism to keep people enslaved way after slavery and how these narratives of kindness and peace and justice, which are great, and I believe in kindness and peace and justice too, but how they are used to make people be quiet. Mm -hmm. And all, all of that history, I see all of that history is of a piece. And that if you make certain kind of comments or make certain kind of connections, you're being too harsh or too rude, or you should just be, you know, have love in your heart. Mm. And so I want to have love in my heart. I do have love in my heart. I have a deep love for the South. But I think you also, if you really love something, then you question it. That's why, to me, this poem ends with a question, because I think it's very important to question what we love and to question the way religion has been uh, used and the Martin Luther King narrative has been used. The narrative is different from Martin Luther King. Martin Luther King was a strategist. He was trying to make a difference, and he was trying to figure out the best way to do that. It wasn't that, oh, just take it, you know, just take it and people will love us. It wasn't about love. You know, it was about economics. It was about freedom. It was about justice. Yeah, that's Dr. Jacqueline Trimble, everybody. Uh, <laughs> I should have said that at the beginning. <laughs> oh. Put some respect on your name uh, with all these facts that you're giving us. Um, but yeah, I I think about these things a lot myself. Yeah. Especially the place of God in all of this. And yes. just like you said, people since slavery have been trying to say, oh, but God, you can't fight back against the slave masters because God, you can't, you know, fight back against Jim Crow because God. But to me, it's like, well, if this is the same God that I've learned about, that's why I should be fighting you. Like, that's the reason. <laughs> exactly. I mean, people make God in their own image. This has been the problem. And they use God for their own purposes. And so this idea that the Bible is full of justice, right? Mm. That we must treat people well, particularly the least among us. We should, all of these things that people seem to sort of overlook and forget when they start talking about the God that allows me to mistreat you, right? To enslave you, to oppress you. Mm, no, sorry, <laughs> not me. I'm not the one. <clears throat> the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Trimble, everybody. <laughs> Yeah. And then also the way that you mentioned MLK, too, this is something that I am constantly embattled yeah. with, especially on MLK Day, which I mean, I'm yes. glad that we have the day, but I don't think people have ever read right. a single speech that the man wrote, you know, by some of the quotes that are posted. It's just so mind boggling to me that he, as you said, he was a strategist and he, he also was. was a human being. I think that slips through the cracks. Brilliant and flawed. Yeah. And that's OK. I prefer my leaders that way. <laughs> Me too, honestly. <laughs> and then the other line, shall I sing? We shall overcome while I swing. Mm -hmm. 
Once again, how dare you, Jackie? <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> how did that line come to you? That line came to me because, oh, it's a, it's a horrible story. So um, my church hosts groups that come through. We have a historic church. And the tourism that happens that I'm grateful for surrounding the civil rights uh, history, and I, I hate to say this, is as romanticized as the Confederate tourism that takes place. You know, it's a romance. And so people come and they're so enamored and they always want to hold hands in the basement of our historic church and sing, We Shall Overcome. I am a good church woman and, you know, help with these things. And so I said to my fellow church member, I said, I ain't singing, We Shall Overcome, no no more, because we ain't overcome yet. Mm -hmm. And I'm just not singing it anymore. And I think it was around the same time that uh, Trayvon Martin had been killed. Mm -hmm. Maybe it was even a little later and the verdict had come in. And I was like, "Mm -mm, that's the last time I ain't singing. We shall overcome no more. Y'all can keep singing if y'all want to, but I need to do something. I need to do something else because this is not working. This is insane. Uh, the other thing that I'm always, um, we always want to make it about feelings and love and we shall overcome and kumbaya. Mm-hmm. But this is about money. It always has been about money, mm-hmm. about economic oppression, trying to keep people out of competition. This is not about love. This is not about how people feel about me. Nobody went over to Africa and got people because they ain't like black people. It wasn't about feelings. It was about money. And so why are we still singing We Shall Overcome? You know, I want us to think about how it is we're going to overcome and we ain't going to overcome by singing. I'm sorry. Hmm. It's a beautiful song, (laughs) but it's just not working for me. No. And it's so interesting that people want to come. And I assume it's you know, a mixed crowd. It's yes. not all black people. It's not all white people. No, no, no. But- and, and mostly not black people, not African-American people. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, my argument is that this um, narrative of we shall overcome is a narrative that often makes people who are not black feel better. Hmm. African-Americans have been here since 1619, before the Mayflower. We have been here and we have provided the raw capital and labor, free labor, mostly, for this country. We have built the wealth of this country. What are we trying to overcome Mm. exactly? You know, am I trying to overcome my birthright? And I know I'm preaching to the choir, Miss Reparations (laughs) now. Um, But I'm saying, why are we singing we shall overcome? Mm. I don't understand. I don't understand. I've been here since the beginning. My people been here since the beginning. I can trace my lineage back to my father, my father's father, my father's father, Mm. and go on back through the generations. And I'm like, I I don't understand. I don't see other peoples in this country singing, we shall overcome. I mean, this is a sermon, everyone who's listening. I'm uh, sorry, 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 sorry. (laughs) Don't, don't, you can't get me started on these questions because this is like, you know, this stuff is real. This is real. It is real. And I am going to start calling you the Reverend Dr. Jacqueline Trimble. I hope you know that's (laughs) your new name. But it is so real, honestly. I was just talking about the the whole we shall overcome thing. We were singing that, or I was not singing it. Someone else, my ancestors were singing it. Not because they wanted to do this weird, like, we're integrated, we're equal, that's all we want. We want to overcome. It was, we want to stop being killed. We want to be able to 
walk down the street and not be afraid for our lives. We want our children to grow up thinking that they are right. valuable. We shall overcome being second-class citizens. But it's taken to mean, you know, and it's uh, deep in my heart, I do believe we shall overcome one day. Is that pushing things off into the future. But what they were in the throes of a horror movie. <laughs> they were trying to survive. I mean, people, we just went to the um, Mississippi Civil Rights Museum. And so I, I know the stories, but then we see them again and again, and you always learn something new. And people were being snatched out of cars, killed. When they were looking for, for example, James Cheney and the young college student and the other uh, worker in Mississippi, and they were dragging the river, they found all these black men's bodies. So that meant mm-hmm. they found all these black men's bodies, like not theirs, but all these other black men that they didn't know were there. And I'm like, so this was like routine. This was like Monday, you know. And so I'm like, that's what they were singing about. Mm-hmm. But now it's kind of like um, nostalgia tourism, mm-hmm. the kinder, gentler Negro singing, you know. <laughs> so I'm like, uh, yeah. Right. Yeah. And if your hands are linked together singing We Shall Overcome Kumbaya, they're not holding the fist that you actually deserve. People don't want us to be angry or they're like, why do you care? Slavery's over, you know. But anger is a useful emotion. Mm-hmm. You cannot stand mm-hmm. without friction. So to just be passive is not to live in the world. And so, yeah, I don't think there's anything wrong with anger, particularly uh, anger that is rooted in a reason. It's not I'm just angry. It's I, I'm angry about this and this and this. People who don't experience life as a person of color, because I can't even just say it's black people. There's many of us who are daily witnessing the murder of our people Yes. over nothing. Like, like I think about Sandra Bland very often, so often. Because it could be any of us. Anybody, any day, any time. Any day, any time. And I mean, it's that real. Like, it's not just a Twitter hashtag. It's not just a flag that I fly. It's my literal actual life could be stolen from me. Depends on it. I mean, Michael Donald, 1981, walking down the street in Mobile, walking down the street. That's it. He didn't do anything. Nothing happened. He just walking down the street. Right. Just existing. Existing in the world. I always try to find the joy, <clears throat> you know, in life and in, in poetry and yes. pain and all of that, because I do think joy is a tool. Um, and part of what I think will be helpful for us, specifically as Black people, yes. I'll just keep it on us because I'm Black, that's what I know, is learning about ourselves yes. and surrounding ourselves with ourselves oh, yeah. also. And so I think about you teaching at an HBCU, shout out to Alabama State University, yes. where my parents met. The Alabama State um, University. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> um, and so, yeah, I think about that a lot. I did not have the fortune to attend an HBCU. I attended a PWI, two PWIs. Yeah, and I'll say for anyone who's listening who's international um, or who just isn't familiar, yes. an HBCU is a historically black college or university, and a PWI is a predominantly white institution. Um, but I'm just wondering if you think or what you think the HBCU's role is in reparations, liberation, all of that. 
So I think um, I also did not go to an HBCU. I went to um, PWIs. I think the HBCU is essential. And I think even more essential than even when I went to school because I grew up surrounded by black people, black church, black business owners. You know, my whole life was an HBCU. And I can't say that same thing for my children. You know, we lived in very integrated neighborhoods. They went to schools that were not always predominated by black people. And so it was very important to my husband and me for them to go to HBCU. Because what we think is that what they get there, surrounded by all this black brilliance, is a sense of themselves at a formative period in their lives. It's that time between 18 and 22 when you sort of become that adult, you know, and we wanted something to not just educate them, but to steal them against the onslaught of what they were going to face in the world alone without us, right? Without mom and dad, because mom and daddy can't, are not there. You have to live your own life. You have to fight your own way. We knew that they would be going out into corporate America and into all of these spaces that were not always the most sensitive to who they were as people, that would not always be welcoming. And we wanted them to have all the tools they needed. And we knew they would get an education because HBCUs, I know we have been educating people forever, Mm -hmm. black people forever. We know how to do it. I have so many students who we've sent off to Harvard and, you know, Cordell and all the Ivy Leagues and this, that and the other. And they come back and they said, I got no better education at those institutions than I got at Alabama State (laughs) University. And I'm so grateful because they needed that to be ready for the other part. And so I think it's more important now, particularly as we are engaged in these culture wars, for African-American students to arm themselves with information, with research, with a sense of who they are as important, as significant in the world, and nobody can tell you anything different. You don't have to listen to somebody else's evaluation of you. Because a lot of times that evaluation comes out of a place of fear or mediocrity. I just want to make you feel small to make myself feel bigger. And it's incredibly important for me. I taught at a PWI for a long time, but it was very important for me to teach at an HBCU. I love my students. And I have students of all types, you know many different countries and many different ethnicities, even at HBCUs. But I think it's important that all students be nurtured and be given a sense of themselves and an understanding of the forces, economic, social, cultural, at work that are designed to erase them. So hearing you talk about the role of HBCU, and especially in a student's formative years, I think that's really key. And again, it makes me kind of wish that I had gone that route because I had to sort of create it for myself as a a college student. But it makes me think very specifically about a moment in my early teaching years. I had some Black students and the topic came up in the classroom about Black Lives Matter. Everybody at my school already knows that I'm very like, you know, about the people, (laughs) you know, it's they know it from jump, the students as well. 
these particular students were very young, maybe eighth grade. And as I said, they were black. And something they said really disturbed me. They um, said, well, you know, now they even have black colleges. HBCUs is what they meant. Now they even have black colleges to further separate us. We're integrated. And I had to stop the class. I said, wait a minute. I can't let you leave here thinking that that's what this is. That's not why these schools exist. They were not formed yesterday. Okay, we could not go to any other schools. We had to make our own schools because we were not allowed. Yeah. But you're Reverend Doctor, so maybe you have more facts and figures. No, I mean, we, uh, the enslaved people, former enslaved people put their nickels and dimes together. And then the AMA, uh, the American Missionary Association, a lot of that money, some of the money that was raised for the Amistad case Mm. ended up being the foundational money for HBCUs right in Alabama, Talladega College was one of the recipients of AMA money. After slavery ended, I think there was something like a 10% of enslaved people could read and about 5% could write, something like that. But people began to form schools everywhere, under trees and basement and houses, anywhere you could gather, people formed schools. And they also wanted to form normal schools, you know, where you would take the normal curriculum because they wanted African-American children to get the same education. They saw education as a way into full citizenship. Mm-hmm. And so they begin, you begin to see all of these schools pop up. And you can see when Alabama State is 1867, you've got Talladega, you've got Dillman, you've got, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And the reason is because they really wanted black people to get an education. And it was not possible at PWIs because they were not allowed in, particularly in the South. And so they made their own schools. And the literacy rate shot up, you know, in like 30 years, we went from a largely illiterate people to a literate people, Mm -hmm. a very well educated people, because our desire for education was so great. And amazing people taught at this school, these schools. I remember uh, John Hope Franklin would come through and teach because they couldn't teach at other schools. There's a wonderful picture of Einstein teaching at an HBCU because people who also believed in the cause would come and they would teach there. And so many of these people who went to HBCUs early, early on got a phenomenal education and their job was to go out and to educate others. One of the main focuses of HBCUs was to create black teachers who would then go out into the um, community and educate others because schools were segregated. And so black children often received a subpar education. But because of HBCUs, Black children begin to to uh, receive an outstanding education in these little one room schoolhouses that popped up all over, and so HBCUs were vitally important to the production of an African American middle class, which then later is able to support a civil rights movement mm-hmm. that leads to voting rights and housing rights and all of these other rights that people enjoyed. So, 
It's a big deal. You know, George Washington Carver went around raising money saying, oh, we can be separate. And then he produces all of these generals and, you know, uh, corporation presidents and entrepreneurs and everything else. So, you know, Booker T knew how to get that money saying the right thing. And then he went back to his little school in Tuskegee and created black wealth. Y'all better be writing this stuff down. This is high quality educational material. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, I think just hearing that history really illustrates how important Black mentorship, leadership, education, and intervention is. Yes. When I think about that story I told you, I mean, I'm not one to toot my own horn ever. Anyone who knows me knows I don't even own the horn that I can toot for myself. <laughs> but I do feel like looking back at that, and that was such a pivotal moment for me as just a human, as a teacher, I thought, okay, if I had not decided that I needed to educate all the students in that moment, not just those Black students, what would they have walked out of the room believing? And what would that have led to later on? What image of themselves would they have carried if I had let them think that these schools were started yesterday in order to separate from whiteness in some way? And I'm like, well, first of all, we're already separate from whiteness. There's no unifying there. (laughs) But those narratives, those competing narratives are out there. And, you know, it's important that we have counter narratives. That's why poets are important to tell the truth. Yes, you stole the words literally out of my mouth, Jackie. <laughs> I was just about to say, for me, poetry plays the same intervention role for everyone, yes. whether they know it or not. You have been influenced by the truth telling of a poet. Right. And it makes me think about as a black poet, as I said, I didn't go to an HBCU and I had to sort of piecemeal my community together. And I remember very distinctly being in college and having been a serious student of writing since I was 12 and never really having had an education on Black poetry. And it was only when I sought out those poems, I can see myself now, little Ashley in the library, just <laughs> grabbing all the books. Yes. Like that, that was when I began to actually awaken in a way that I had not before. And so it makes me then think about the HBCU for writers and I think the hole that exists there, and I'm asking you a leading question. I hope you know what I, why I'm asking you this yes, question. I get it. <laughs> what role do you think is being played or could be played by the HBCU for writers or in writing? Oh, I think a space to write where your tradition is nurtured. And like you, I went to PWIs. The, you know, the Black writers we read were Langston Hughes, maybe Gwendolyn Brooks, And everybody else I read on my own. I'm older than you are, so it was even worse. Not only were there no black writers, there were no women writers. There is nothing. And I am not one that hates dead white men. I love the dead white men. You know, they were fantastic. Like, I, <laughs> Wait a minute. I have, lear- I, have, I have learned, I don't mean that in a, a killing way. I mean like Keats and Wordsworth and, you know, a Whitman and uh, Faulkner. And yeah. these are brilliant writers, uh, Elliot. Their politics often aside, whatever. But there are so many things that we learn as writers from them. Mm. And um, we, whether we like it or not, do write out of that tradition. But the other people I had to learn on my own. When I was a little kid, my mother had these volumes called the Harvard Classics. You know, everybody from Ovid to 
probably went up to somebody like Poe. And I would read these things. I had no idea what they meant. It didn't matter. But I would just read them because it was amazing to me. It was so interesting. I loved the language. I fell in love with T.S. Eliot. I would recite the love song of J. Alfred Prufrock. I would read it every night before I went to bed and I could just recite it. I would recite all of these people because their music and their long before I understood what in the world they were writing about. But where was my education in the literature of my people? I think it was there. I just did not realize it was there. It was there in church with the spirituals. It was there with the sermons. It was there when people got up and recited Paul Lawrence Dunbar. It was there when people got up and recited Langston Hughes. It was there when my mother would recite poems to me when I was a little child and we would make up words. It was there when I would sit and listen to all of my black elders tell stories and jokes. It was in the rhythm of the people, the rhythm of the voices and the messages and the talking of the people that I heard every single day of my life. I just did not realize that I was getting an education there. And then when I got to college and began to become aware that, wait a minute, I think I have missed a whole reading life. And someone gave me a copy of Toni Morrison's The Bluest Eye. And I, you know, I was a huge Flannery O'Connor fan, Faulkner fan, blah, 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 blah. I think I had read all of Faulkner. And then I got The Bluest Eye and I read it and my entire life blew up. And I thought, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Who is this woman? And why is it that I see people I recognize in here? I have never recognized a black person in a single thing I've read by Faulkner or any of these other folks. But here she is talking about the mama rubbing Vic salves into the child's chest and making them swallow. I swallowed so much Vic salves, you know, when I was a kid. It's a wonder I'm not brain dead. But I was like, <laughs> oh, these are my people. And then I couldn't get enough. I read everything. I read every black female writer, every black male writer I could find. I'm like, where have these people been all my life? What? There are more black writers than Ralph Ellison? Are you kidding me? And Langston Hughes? Wow. And, you know, and I discovered Zora Neale Hurston. It was like (laughs) over. It was done. I never looked back. Right. So, I mean, um, but what the HBCU does is... That's the education they start with, right? It's like, yeah, hear the folks. Mm. See what they write? <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I have to say I had a similar awakening for sure. I mean, The Bluest Eye, that, that took me longer. Kudos to you for reading that the first time around. I started it and I was like, I don't know if I'm ready. <laughs> oh, it's a lot. It's a lot. A brilliant book, but like, be patient with yourself on that one. Because, wow. I definitely um, wish for everybody that when they're going through their their writing journey, that they would have somebody to be like, hey, here's the people who are like you, who are also doing this thing, you know. When I was taking workshop, I was wanting to write like Gerald Stern, who I still love as a poet, but Gerald Stern, you know, uh, and it was his sardonic sense of humor. But I was like, but I hadn't read June Jordan. You know, it's like, okay, I still love Gerald Stern, but you know, June Jordan, yeah. Uh, Lucille Clifton. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But none of my teachers had recommended those people because that was not 
and no shade to them. They were great teachers. That was just not their tradition. And I remember sitting in workshop and people would say sometimes something like, hmm, I don't really like this speaker, you know? Hmm. Of course they didn't like the speaker because that speaker might not have been speaking their language. Mm. I get that. Right. But then I think too, whenever I think about that question of, oh, well, I just don't understand it because it's not my culture. It's like I, my whole education was not my culture. And I didn't say, well, right. I can't relate. I can't read this. I can't give you critique because I don't know anything about it. Like, no, <laughs> you know. Well, I mean, that comes, that dominion comes in there. Yes. Right? I don't have to understand any other culture. Right. Right. I love the word dominion also. It's a great word. I wanted to pivot a little. We're talking about writing journeys and something that you said to me recently has stuck with me for a while. I had occasion to sing your praises, which I do as much as possible. And you said, well, there's a gap in my resume. Let me explain it to you. And it seemed to me that you were saying, well, I'm just, you know, an early career poet. In my mind, those words don't make sense when I think about you. But I understand what you're saying because, you know, your first book came out in 2016, right? 16, correct. And you've been working at the university level for a while, you know. Long time. And I started to think about, I don't know how to really word it. Like maybe there's a belief that the like young superstar is the way to go, you know, when you're a poet. And if you reach a certain age, then it's over for you. You're done. And I just don't, I don't think that's true. I think there's many more people like you than there are out I will talk bad about myself, about me, or, uh, you know, <laughs> I am not that young anymore, but... Oh, you're young. You're well, young. thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. I'm holding on to that very tightly because, I mean, I'll be 31 in a month and I know that's oh, not old, but that's... I've never been 31 before. So it's like, whoa. <laughs> <You know? laughs> Every age is a great age. Every age has advantages and disadvantages. I would not, mm-hmm. for any amount of money, go back. And that is the truth. No amount of money. But by the same token, um, and I'm happy with where I am now, but I think you have to be the age you are when you are the age you are. I asked Nikki Finney the same question like last week. And I said, I'm, you know, an older poet, just kind of getting really started. And I feel like I'm writing as fast as I can to catch up. She said, stop writing fast. Stop trying to catch up. You have nothing to catch up for. Basically, write where you are. And I thought that was so smart. And this is something my husband's been saying forever. My poetry is different now than it was when I was a young poet because my life is different. My interests are different. My knowledge is different. Hmm. And as my husband reminds me is that You don't have to get a job. You don't have to get tenure. You don't have to rise in rank. You have done all of that. So all you have to do is write whatever you want to write. And it doesn't even matter if people like it or don't like it. Mm -hmm. Because nothing depends upon it except your desire to say something. Mm. And so in a way, you're free. In a way, you're free. It goes back to my, my theory of black women. I think that black women are, you know, have long been touted as always being at the bottom of everything. And I read a survey not several years ago that talked about black women have high self-esteem compared to other groups. And I said, of course we do, 
Because when nobody wants you, when you think that nobody wants you, when you're at the bottom, you just are who you are. And it's like, love me, don't love me, whatever, I love myself. And so it's a freedom there. You know, there's a real freedom in not having to please anybody. Mm. And so I'm trying to lean into the freedom rather than thinking about, oh, I wish I'd done this when I was, you know, 22 so what? I did some other things. I raised children and and nurtured students and nurtured faculty members and did other things. And so I'm, I think I'm okay. I think I'm okay. I'm shaking my head because, um, and you may have noticed my little Holy Ghost hand go up when you were talking. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> you know, when I thought about asking you this question, I was like, okay, great. This is going to be, it's going to go like this. And uh, she's going to say this thing. And just like every single time, I'm a broken record, truly. Every time I record this podcast, somebody is speaking directly to something that I need to hear. And you have just spoken something to me that I needed to hear, Jackie. Mm. People may think because I am about to be three books in and, you know, 30 years old, whatever, however shiny that may seem, I too have those feelings of, oh, wait a minute, like, yeah. what am I doing? Maybe it's the reverse. It's like, am I doing too much? Do I need to slow down? Why am I, you know out here like this? Should I have, you know, tried to get married, have kids? Like, these are things that I think I'm missing out on. But this is your journey. This is your journey. I think the, the mistake people make is they try to make the journey look like they think it's supposed to look. But there's no such thing as what it's supposed to look like. It looks like what it looks like. Ashley Jones, you are doing exactly what you are supposed to be doing. You are headed just where you need to be headed, and you're headed in the time you need to be headed. Reverend Doctor. Uh, <laughs> I'm, just, I'm just saying. Please listen to this. You know. Wow. Thank you. This is why I said at the beginning, we are so lucky to be able to say, at least you're from the same state we're from. That's the, the only thing we can hold on to sometimes. Like, well, she's from the same place I am. <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, <my laughs> just incredible. <laughs> You don't know how important it has been to, to see your example here in Alabama, just to see how you carry yourself and that freedom on the page that you talk oh. about. It's so palpable. Like you are saying whatever it is you have to say and people have to just fall in line. There's no other response. Yeah. There's no like, well, actually, there's none. <laughs> <You know>? <laughs> <laughs> there can't be. Um, and it's just so inspiring to so many of us to see you doing it. And this actually goes very beautifully into where I wanted to go next, which was joy. As I said earlier, um, I do try to find the joy everywhere that I can. And it's hard. I mean, you live here like I do. It's difficult. <laughs> it's very difficult. But you have a poem in the July-August. And again, if y'all out there have not read or listened to each and every poem that Jackie has in this issue and any other issue of anything, please do so. Um, <laughs> Please do so. That's all I can say. But I would love for you to read the poem, The Language of Joy. Oh, sure. The Language of Joy. Black woman joys like this. Mama said one day long before I was born, she was walking down the street, foxes around her neck, their little heads smiling up at her and out at the world. And she was wearing this suit she had saved up a month's paycheck for after it called to her so seductively from the window of this boutique. And that suit was wearing her, 
keeping all its promises in all the right places. Indigo, matching gloves, suede shoes, dippity doodad in blue, with tassels, honey gold, and Lord, a hat with plumed a peacock, a conductor's baton that bounced to hip rhythm. She looked so fine, she thought Louis Armstrong might pop up out of those movies she saw as a child, wipe his forehead and sing, ba da da bop bo do de do de do do And he did. Mama did not sing, but she was skiddly doing that day. And the foxes grinned, and she grinned, and she was the star of her own Hollywood musical. Here was Satchmo, who had called Ella over, and now they were all singing and dancing like a free people up Dexter Avenue. And don't think they didn't know they were walking in the footsteps of slaves and over auction sites and past where old Wallace had held on to segregation like a life raft. But this was not that day. This day was for foxes and hip rhythm and musical perfection and folks on the street joining in the celebration of breath and holiness. And they did, too. In color-coordinated ensembles, they kicked and turned and grinned and shouted like church or football game, whatever their religious preference. The air vibrated with music, arms, legs, and years of unrequited sunshine. Somebody did a flip up Dexter Avenue. It must have been a Nicholas brother in a featured performance. And Mama was Miss Lena Horn, Dorothy Dandridge, high-stepping up the real estate, ready for her close-up. That's when Mama felt this little tickle. She thought it might be pent-up joy until a mouse squirmed out from underneath that fine collar over that fabulous fur, jumped off her shoulder, and ran down the street. Left my mama standing there on Dexter Avenue in her blue suit and dead foxes. And what did mama do? Everybody looking at her, robbed by embarrassment. She said, it be like that sometimes. Then she and Satchmo, Ella and the whole crew jammed their way home. Yes, <laughs> I love that poem. <laughs> oh my gosh, I can't believe that mouse. What a, what a mouse. <laughs> no, what a mouse. There's always a mouse. There's always a mouse. There really is. Um, that poem, like the others, when I heard it, I was like, oh my gosh, yet again. Here is Jackie. Not only will she give us the hard, cold, burn it down kind of truth, but also she gives us this moment of joy. And that is something, like I said, that I search for all the time. And I do find it in poetry and I find it in ancestors and in stories like that. And I just wanted to ask you as we close, what is bringing you joy right now, today, this moment or in this season of life? Tomorrow is my 36th wedding anniversary. That brings me joy. My children bring me joy. Friendships bring me joy. Because at the end of the day, relationship, you know, to be in relationship with other people is just a wonderful, a wonderful thing. And I, poetry, of course, brings me enormous joy. Um, my husband said to me one day, he said, you're not happy. And I said, I'm happy. He says, no, you're not happy because you're not writing. And he said, and if you don't return to writing, you'll never be happy. And I said, I'm too old to write. And he says, no, you're not. Start writing. And I started writing again. And 
I hate that he knows me better than I know me. But he he does. And he was right. And I have never in my life been happier than I am right now at this moment in my life. Jacqueline Allen Trimble's debut poetry collection, American Happiness, won the Balkanes Poetry Prize. You can read and listen to four poems by Trimble in the July-August issue of Poetry, in print and online. If you're enjoying the Poetry Magazine podcasts, let us know. Please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts. And if you're not yet a subscriber to the magazine, there's a special rate for podcast listeners. For a limited time, you can get a full year of the magazine for $20. That's 11 book-length issues for just $20. Visit poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer to subscribe. That's poetrymagazine.org slash podcast offer. This show is produced by Rachel James. The music in this episode came from Reservoir and Irreversible Entanglements. All these songs were released by the Chicago-born record label International Anthem. All right, that's it, y'all. Until next time, be well, stay safe, and thanks for listening.